Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Once again, as, as has already been prayed, we thank you for this uh, transition Sunday, this Sunday where we both uh, end our week of thanksgiving, and so there is still an emphasis on giving you thanks, and we transition into uh, thinking about you coming to earth and giving us the greatest gift of all, and that is yourself, and that is restoring us to you uh, through your own sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for your word that describes and explains all of this to us and makes clear uh, the way to salvation, the way to be restored to you, the way to have a relationship with you, the way to know that we'll go to heaven someday. We thank you for all that hope and all those promises in your word. Lord, I pray that you bless our time this morning, that your word would go forth and not return void, but that it would take deep root in the hearts of each of us and bear fruit. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Going on 10 years ago, uh, when I first started working with who was then the senior pastor at my previous church in Philadelphia, that summer we went to Brooklyn, New York for a regular meeting with the other urban pastors. Now, I don't know uh, how, familiar, how familiar you are with the, with the five boroughs of New York City, but the easiest way to get to Brooklyn from Philadelphia is to go through our wonderful state of New Jersey. That's the best way to get there and, and through Staten Island. The, the pastor knew that I was dating Cheery, who lived in Staten Island, so he decided to mess around with me a little bit and have a little fun. This whole time I assumed that this pastor had taken this route before and knew where he was going. But right when we got to a fork in the highway where you either took one route one way and the other route the other way, going 65 miles an hour, the pastor asked me if I knew which way to go, and he asked it in such a way as to imply that he wasn't sure. I thought that he, I, I thought that he thought that I knew which way to go, but here was the problem. I didn't know which way to go. All I could say was, I think you go such and such a way, but I'm not really sure. This whole time I was getting all flustered, wondering if we were going to get lost because I knew the pastor hadn't brought any directions with him and wasn't using a GPS. Then as we got closer and closer to where the highway divided and I got more and more anxious about it, he just directed the car to one of the routes and smiled. And when he smiled, I realized that even though I wasn't sure which way to go and I had no idea if he knew which way to go, he ended up knowing the entire time. In life, there are different phases of your life that seemingly come out of nowhere. You don't know which way to go, and you might be tempted to think that God has no idea, no idea which way He wants you to go. But what we always have to remember, even as we get all flustered and upset and confused, is that God knows what He's doing, where He wants you to go, and what He wants you to do the entire time. He's never surprised. Sitting around the Thanksgiving table this week, this past week, you might have looked over this pasture and either thought, wow, look at all that God has been doing. Or you may have thought, wow, what on earth is God thinking? It might have been either one of those thoughts. This morning, we're again taking a break from our current series in 1 Corinthians, and we'll pick back up with that next week. And as we end Thanksgiving week, our minds can't help to be on family or thinking about what happened this past week. Some of those thoughts are, are happy and joyful memories of past holidays with family members. And some of those thoughts are maybe incredibly painful ones. Today we're going to be looking at an experience in the life of one of the most famous families in the Bible. 
As life happens, we enter into different seasons of relationships with different family members, don't we? Children are born, parents get promoted to grandparents, and and grandparents get promoted to great-grandparents. Children grow up, and parents and grandparents start thinking about more and more about what they want to pass on to those children. We're going to be taking a look at a particular season in the family of Jacob in the Old Testament. If you've read through Genesis, you know that there was a man named Jacob who had 12 sons. The second to the last born of those sons was named Joseph, and he was his father's favorite. One day, this boy Joseph had a couple of divinely given dreams, and both of them carried the meaning that he would rule over his entire family one day, including all of his older brothers and even his parents. Do you think that sat well with Joseph's older brothers? Not at all. Partly out of jealousy because of their father's obvious favoritism towards Joseph, even going so far as to have a brightly colored robe made for Joseph, and mostly out of the desire to keep Joseph's dreams from coming true, his older brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. Joseph continued to work hard, even through all the emotional turmoil he experienced, to work his way up through his master's household until he became the head servant. One day, Joseph was accused of a crime he didn't commit and was thrown into prison for a long time. Years later, he was released, and through a series of divinely orchestrated events, Joseph was made governor over all of Egypt, second only to the Egyptian king. A horrible famine in that area forced Joseph's family to come to Egypt to get food from him. These divinely orchestrated events not only led to reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers, but also reunited him with his father after decades of not seeing him. And at this point, Jacob is now nearing the end of his life, and he's passing on blessings and prophecies to his children. In our passage this morning, Jacob moves to his son, Joseph. Well, we start out with... uh, may may not have come as a surprise to them, but then again, it might have. You're really never ready for certain things to happen in your life, are you? Through this, we will see how no matter how confusing things may be, God still knows what he's doing. God is never surprised. So the first point that we come to in Genesis 48 is the bulletin. If you would uh, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 48. It's the very first book in the Bible. It should be pretty easy to find. And turn to chapter 48. It's going to be very uh, right towards the end of the book. uh, So we can see all this together. The first point that we have is the bulletin. Now some churches give out what are called bulletins, like like we do, in order to give the news about the goings-on of the church to the congregants. Hopefully you picked one up uh, on your way into the sanctuary today. When you want other people to know about something new that is going on, you advertise it on a what kind of board? A bulletin board. The purpose of the bulletin is to give news. And some news reaches Joseph's ears regarding the physical state of his father. Genesis 48, verse 1, and we read, Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. It makes sense that Joseph would go to see his father when news reaches him about how his father is not doing uh, very well. And it also makes sense that he would take his two sons, named Manasseh and Ephraim, who were Jacob's grandsons, to go see him as well. 
Not only were Manasseh and Ephraim to see their grandfather as he is very sick, but Joseph brought them along also because he knew that if his father was going to die soon, he needed to pass along his blessing. And he wanted his sons, Jacob's grandsons, to see that. Joseph, as Ephraim and Manasseh's father, as has been pointed out, would want them to see what peace, trusting in God and his wisdom, could give to them. Joseph was strengthening the faith that he was teaching them back home in Egypt proper by showing them an example of faith in his father's dying days. Parents and grandparents, the strongest, the the greatest influence your kids will follow is not what you've told them about faith in God, but what you've showed them about faith in God. That is what will stick with them through the years. It's not enough to just say, don't worry because your heavenly father already knows what you need and then live your life in worry and anxiety about those very things. Your kids need to see your faith being modeled to them. And then when they're older, they need to say ultimately, what would Jesus do in this situation? But also, what would dad or mom or grandma or grandpa do in this situation because of their faith? Jacob hears that his beloved son has arrived to see him in verse 2. And we read, When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Again, Israel was was a name that God gave to Jacob. So we're talking about the same person here. Jacob has a bulletin of his own in verses 3 through 4. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. In these verses, Jacob is reiterating the covenant that God had set up with him and had promised to his descendants, which obviously included Joseph. Everything Jacob has to say after this is directly connected to that covenant. The words Jacob was about to say had power, and Jacob wanted to show why they had power and where that power ultimately came from. In the same, in the same way, everything that we say has power. James 3, 3-5 through 5 says, We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go, even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. James goes on to say, No one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? As we talk about what legacy we're passing on, we must remember that everything we say has power. It can turn the tide of pain or it can increase it a hundredfold. It can be a source of truth or it can remain silent. It can be of assuring love or assuring of judgment. It can be a source of power for God's kingdom or it can be a source of power for evil. It can build into those looking up to you or it can tear them down. If you have a means of communication, you have great power. The question is, how are we using it? 
to build up the body of Christ or to tear it down, to give truth or to condone with silence, to teach the next generation or to discourage them from the things of God. Jacob starts out with a covenant that God made with him a long time ago before this as a reminder to his son Joseph, but also to Joseph's sons. And why is that? Joseph was now heavily involved in the Egyptian government. Joseph's sons were, for all intents and purposes, thoroughly Egyptian. Their blood was half Hebrew, but all their friends were Egyptian. Their mother was Egyptian. The culture they knew was Egyptian. And everything they knew about how to live life was Egyptian. And yet Jacob was calling them away from all of that, calling them away from Egypt and back to the covenant that God had made with his family. The first part of that covenant dealt with being fruitful and multiplying. That would most likely continue in Jacob's family in or outside of Egypt. But Jacob was also calling forth the part of the covenant that said the family was to ultimately end up back in Canaan, the promised land. Don't throw your entire lot in with the Egyptians, Jacob is saying between the lines here. Your home is not in Egypt. Your home is the land of Canaan, which God promised to me and to you. We can glean a lesson from this reminder as well. Hebrews 13, 14 tells us this. This world is not our permanent home. Don't invest in it. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. That's what we're focused on. That's what we're looking forward to. Don't throw your lot in with this world, for it is passing away. Instead, put your focus on your eternal home. This means in the way that we live our lives. This means in the way that we're raising our families. This means in the way that we're using our resources. This means in where our hope is. This means in whether or not we have accepted God's free gift of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jacob moves on to what he says next, verses 5 through 6. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. And what is the significance of these verses? This isn't Jacob just making some statement that should have been obvious, that his grandsons were part of his family. That's a given. Everybody would know that. There's something much more important going on here. What Jacob is doing here is giving Joseph's sons the same inheritance rights as his own sons. Now, what's the big deal about that? How the doling of inheritance worked out back then is that if you had five kids, you would divide your inheritance into six shares and give the extra share to the firstborn. That's how that, that was called the, the birthright, the, the uh, inheritance share, the birthright share. If you know the story of when Jacob was a young man and his older brother Esau what Esau sold to Jacob for a bowl of lentil soup was that extra share of inheritance known as his birthright. So now what Jacob does here was divide his inheritance up by 13 as he had 12 sons and split the firstborn extra share between Joseph's sons. We'll see why he does this in a minute. But firstly, why does Jacob not give the firstborn inheritance share to his oldest son, a man named Reuben? That would be the logical and natural thing to do. 
Well, Reuben had that position taken away from him by Jacob after he did something incredibly dishonoring towards his father. Back then, when the patriarch of a family died, his oldest son, as part of his birthright, assumed the authority in that family. Years prior to our passage this morning, Reuben got it into his head, even though my father is still alive, I'm not waiting around anymore. I'm not waiting around any longer to take the authority of this family into my own hands. So back then, one, one way to force this to happen was to sleep with your father's concubine, thus emasculating him and taking his authority as your own. And that's exactly what Reuben did. Jacob was not going to let Reuben think he got away with that grievous sin and dishonor, so he took away Reuben's extra birthright share and gave it to Joseph's sons. We have this proven for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 5. And we read, The oldest son of Israel, Jacob, was Reuben. But since he dishonored his father by sleeping with one of his father's concubines, his birthright was given to the sons of his brother Joseph. For this reason, Reuben is not listed in the genealogical records as the firstborn son. The descendants of Judah became the most powerful tribe, which the Messiah came from, and provided a ruler for the nation, but the birthright belonged to Joseph. Here's a question that entered my mind every time I read this passage. Why did Jacob not just give Joseph the firstborn share? Why did he insist on giving it to his two sons instead, and not just give it outright to Joseph? Well, here's where we come to what I said a minute ago as to why Jacob gives the birthright share to Joseph's sons. What may seem trivial to us actually has a couple of strong connections. Firstly, Jacob wanted his thoroughly Egyptian grandsons to see themselves as also part of the covenantal Hebrew family and more importantly, to see themselves as the followers of the one true God. That's what he wanted them to see. He was including his, for all intents and purposes, culturally Egyptian grandsons into the promise of faith in Yahweh. This is crucial to their own personal faith as well as the faith that they would pass on to their children. Jacob did not want Joseph's part of the family to fall away from the faith and the blessings that went along with that faith even one generation down the road. So he includes them right here, includes them in that covenant. Secondly, as was just mentioned, Jacob could not in good conscience let his two oldest sons get away with the horrible, sons they had commit, uh, horrible sins they had committed. Reuben had greatly dishonored him by trying to assert himself as a new leader of the family before, before his father had died by sleeping with his father's concubine. Simeon was the one Jacob held responsible for the out-of-control violent slaughter his sons committed at the city of Shechem in revenge for uh, the assault, the sexual assault of their sister Dinah. Thus, as verse 5 here uh, shows, Reuben and Simeon are replaced by Ephraim and Manasseh. That's what's going on here in these verses. Two sons needed to be replaced, so two grandsons are elevated to take their place. Granted, Reuben and Simeon's descendants do become tribes of Israel, but in terms of bestowed honor and inheritance from Jacob, they are replaced by Joseph's two sons. In this way, as one biblical scholar put it, Joseph did receive the double portion of inheritance, just bypassed him and already passed on to his sons, who it was going to go to anyway. Jacob goes on to talk about Joseph's mother and therefore Ephraim and Manasseh's grandmother in verse 7. 
Now as for me, when I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. This is the great connection between father and son. Both father and son grieved deeply at the time of Rachel's death, just in two different locations. And, and Jacob is reiterating that deep connection they have together. Jacob and Joseph must have had, at this point, and the, as they're reunited and Joseph finds out about this, spent a lot of hours as they grieved, forming an incredibly deep bond. So the first point that we had is the bulletin. Secondly, we have the blessing. Next, we move on to the news of the blessing. Jacob transitions to talking about the blessing of inheritance and passing on of the family's faith to giving the blessing now, verses 8 through 9. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Well, these verses may seem a little weird, huh? Why wouldn't Jacob have immediately recognized his two grandsons? Well, it's entirely possible that Jacob simply had not met them yet up until this point. We can infer that from the following verses. Now, why not? Possibly Joseph's wife, while potentially sympathetic to the Hebrew God, was not above the discrimination that the Egyptians had towards Hebrews in general and didn't want her noble Egyptian sons mingling with those Hebrews. Possibly Joseph's responsibilities, the Egyptian crown, prevented him from having time to bring his sons to their grandfather. To back this up, verses 10 through 11 say, Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. So we can easily surmise that now, this is the first time Jacob was meeting his grandsons. On top of that, Jacob was half blind, so he wanted to make sure that the two boys Joseph had with him were indeed his sons. Next, we have a very curious transaction, verses 12 through 20. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face on the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand on Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the hand of Ephraim, who is the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands. Although Manasseh was the firstborn, he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. 
He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be the greater in he, than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Before we get into that curious transaction of the blessing, who is the angel referred to here? Why does it seem like Jacob is referring to God as merely an angel when we read through that blessing? Well, most likely Jacob is referring to another experience he had in his life when the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Decades ago, when Jacob was a lot younger and had lots of young children, he worked for his uncle and father-in-law, a man named Laban. When Jacob is recounting to his wives why they need to leave Laban's employment, he says to them, one time during the mating season, I had a dream and saw that the male goats mating with the females were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Then in my dream, the angel of God said to me, Jacob, and I replied, yes, here I am. The angel said, look up and you will see that only the streaked, speckled, and spotted lambs are meeting with the females of your flock, for I have seen how Laban has treated you. I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel, the place where you anointed the pillar of stone and made your vow to me. Now get ready and leave this country and return to the land of your birth. You see that similar connection there uh, with, 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 that, with that experience. So what we see here is not that Jacob is referring to God as an angel, but that God oftentimes had given messages and blessed people through his angel of the Lord's spokesangel, so to speak. Quite possibly, and by referring to this angel of the Lord as the representative of God, Jacob is referring to God himself. Quite possibly, this reference may even have been what theologians term the pre-incarnate Christ. That is, the second person of the Trinity manifesting himself as an angel before he took on human flesh and was born as a baby in a manger. Especially in that way, Jacob is really referring to God himself, even in referencing the angel of the Lord. This is not the first time we've seen the secondborn receiving the firstborn's blessing, is it? Anybody who's read through this book of Genesis. Ironically, in addition to the birthright share of inheritance, it was Jacob, the secondborn, who deceptively stole the firstborn blessing from his brother. While it was in fulfillment of the prophecy that was given to his mother, Rebecca, while she was pregnant with both Jacob and Esau, Jacob forced it to happen his own way. Now, Jacob is ironically putting forth that pattern again, except this time in the spirit of prophecy. In fulfillment of this prophecy, what ends up happening is that the tribe of Ephraim would become more numerous than Manasseh, and the land would, that would be given to Manasseh would be divided half on each side of the Jordan River. In addition, the next leader of the entire nation of Israel, Joshua, comes from the tribe of Ephraim. So in these fulfillments of prophecy, Ephraim does indeed become greater than Manasseh. Joseph was upset because Jacob was doing something that wasn't customary and even unfair to the firstborn. But Jacob was following the prophecy that God gave to him. Sometimes God will do things that don't make sense to us. And usually, our gut reaction is what? To become upset. But in keeping with our theme, God is never surprised. He's never surprised about anything because he is in control of everything. When the Apostle Paul addressed the Council of Athens, he declared this. He is the God, this is 
these are some of the most powerful verses in the Bible. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. God is never surprised when you lose a loved one. God is never surprised if you lose your job or your source of income or you get sick or you get hurt. God is never surprised about any of that. God is never surprised when the governments of nations condone and even support what the Bible says is sin or are actively persecuting believers. As difficult as it is to recognize and live out, this is the truth that God wants to remind us of in Romans 8. 828. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Even as we go through very difficult times, we know that God is still with us. He is still growing us and deepening his love towards us and showing himself faithful to us. Things were changing rapidly for Joseph in connection with his father. I'm sure Joseph had thought about how much time he had left with his dad, but you're never really prepared to think about your parents' death. But Jacob wants to assure Joseph of a truth, verses 21 through 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I will give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Jacob isn't necessarily referring to Joseph himself that he'll return to the promised land, but Joseph's and his brother's descendants after them. Now what's interesting to note is this. Genesis 47, 28 tells us, Jacob lived for 17 years after his arrival in Egypt. So he lived 147 years in all. When Jacob first arrived in Egypt and was reunited with Joseph and was introduced to the Egyptian king, Genesis 47.9 tells us that Jacob was 130 years old. So as Genesis 47.28 does the math for us, Jacob lived for 17 years in the land of Egypt. Now why is this important? How long did the famine that brought Jacob's family to Egypt last? Seven years, right? So Jacob lived for another 10 years just outside of Egypt proper in the rural suburb of Goshen along with the rest of his sons even after the famine ended. When he looked around him 10 years after the great famine ended, what did he see? He most likely saw his sons not making any movement whatsoever on moving back to Canaan where they were supposed to be. They had a good life in Egypt. They had the best land Egypt had to offer with their brother in the second to highest command. Who wouldn't want to leave that? Sure, they at one point looked ahead to returning to Canaan after the famine, but now they weren't so sure. Now perhaps they wanted to stay in Goshen for the rest of their lives and leave their flocks to their children to continue to raise in Goshen. Perhaps now they had no intention 
of returning to Canaan anytime soon. And that was the problem that Jacob saw in his last days. But he also saw that someday his descendants would return to Canaan. And Jacob's descendants would 400 years later after they were crying out to God to rescue them from slavery in Egypt. So what Jacob was essentially doing as he said his last words to Joseph was declaring in faith that God would always be with his descendants and would bring them back to Canaan someday. He declared this even as he looked around him and noticed things were completely to the contrary. You may be looking around yourself and your circumstances and wondering, God, do you really know what you're doing? Do you really know what you're doing? Yes. It may not seem like it at the time, but God is working everything out for the good of his children. It may not be our definition of good, but it's God's definition of good. It may not be what makes sense to us, but it makes sense to God. Psalm 23, 4, as we read in Sunday school this morning, even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. The valley of the shadow of death. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You are with me. God is never surprised by what you're going through. In fact, he already knows what's going on better than you do. And he even knows what's coming up ahead. For that reason, we can all take heart in our closing verse. And if you didn't write down anything today, write down this reference and look this up later. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. God is not aloof. God does not not know what's going on in your life. God is intimately acquainted with everything that you're going through right now, that you have gone through and that you will go through because he delights. He delights in every detail of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what a, a, a seemingly um, irrelevant passage to us can, can bring out to us. Those truths that you are never surprised. You always know what's going on in our lives. Lord, we thank you that in addition to you knowing what's going on in our lives, you are right there beside us, going through them. Not only do we have the truth of knowing that you have everything planned out for us, but we have the truth and the peace of knowing that you're going through it with us. You didn't just plan it and step back and say, have fun. You planned it and you're walking through it right with us. Lord, we thank you for that promise. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.